I'll tell you, I was a high school teacher for seven years and never dreamed ever once to come into a class unprepared. I was the kind of teacher that stayed up all hours of the night and had the most complete outline and questions and all kinds of things prepared for my students. But God has completely contradicted the previous pattern of my life and turned that life upside down and inside out. I could have no confidence in preparation and past practice or anything that with which I'm familiar, but made increasingly more and more tremblingly dependent upon him. And I know there's a lot of people listening to me even now thinking, oh yeah, that's what he's saying. But he knows well what he's going to speak. He's a professional. I've just been contemplating different possibilities. Maybe we ought to have a question and answer session. Maybe I ought to begin by letting Inga say something. But then, is that what God wants or am I just stalling for time? I want what God wants. And after speaking about desiring the thing which is perfect rather than that which is good, I think that we ought to seek to live that. So let's bow our hearts knowing that we're not just looking to one vessel. We're all in this together. We all want to hear from God. Let's just agree together. And after that prayer, I ask you not to look up. Let's just wait on the Lord. A few seconds. In fact, don't look up until you have a sense in your heart of assurance of which direction the Lord wants to take. Because I'm going to ask you a question, and let's see that how it is that those of us who claim to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit will have the witness of the Spirit as to how we shall proceed tonight. Shall we have a question and answer period? Shall we begin with that? Shall we hear something from anger? Shall I immediately launch into something that God will suggest? We're in this together, and we need to be dependent one upon another. Okay? Let's, let's look to him. Precious holy God, Lord. Mighty God, Lord. You've already spoken, Lord. You've made it clear you've not called us here tonight for any kind of entertainment. You're going to speak something, mighty God, out of your own heart by your spirit, for which you've told us to take careful heed. And Lord, I confess with embarrassment I have not an inkling of what that something is. You've heard what I've discussed, Lord, with these precious children. We just stand before you, Lord. We have no might, no strength in ourselves, but our eyes are set upon thee. And I ask you now, precious God, Holy One of Israel, Yeshua, Jesus, that in your great name, Lord, you will give us now a witness by your Spirit, that we might all have a sense, Lord, of the direction that you would have us to take for this night. Speak to us now by your Spirit, Lord. Give us quiet assurance by that still, small voice. Lead us, Lord, into that which is perfect for this hour, for this people, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is already the most unusual meeting that I've ever attended. It's not fair really to put all of the weight and the responsibility upon the speaker alone if we're in this together. And I think you've already learned that it's a serious matter to determine the will of the Lord. To discern what is the mind of God for tonight. It's far more comfortable just to lean back and let the pro do his stuff, right? But when we're all in it together and need answer, when the issues are real and the stakes are life and death, it's a giddy thing to say that, oh, we're all led by the Spirit. But it's a far more sobering thing to say, okay, you believe that? You're on the spot. Now, there's only one God and one Spirit and one way. God is not divided against himself. 
let's just have a kind of religious happening tonight or a spiritual happening rather than a meeting. I'm really curious how many people, having prayed and looked intently toward the Lord, have a sense of what direction we should take this night. Just raise your hand. How many people, having prayed, are you put your hand down, have no sense of what direction to take? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. I would say it's roughly about 50-50. I don't know what conclusion to draw about that. Supposing we had to make some collective decision tonight. It was a life and death matter for the body of Christ or for this community. Or supposing three great armies were standing on our border and they were far greater than our strength. And we needed answer from God and we were all assembled together with our wives and our children standing on the steps of the temple as Jehoshaphat and pray almost as I did, Lord, we have no strength against this number, but our eyes are set upon thee. Now we're going to pray, Lord, and ask that you would lead us by your spirit. And we prayed and we finished, and now we have to determine what it is that God is speaking. Some lady already stood and made a request for a kind of message. How many people who raised their hand that they think they have a sense of the direction God would have us to take feel that we ought to begin with a question and answer period. Raise your hand. Don't look to anyone else. Just raise your hand. How many people feel, I put your hand down, that we ought to begin with giving Inga some time to share what's on her heart? Okay. Put your hand down. How many people feel that I should just begin with whatever I think I ought to speak? <laughs> well, what do we say? Back to the drawing board? <laughs> I think so. This, this, what's happening now is not out of my head. I had never planned any such thing. It's too clever for my planning. <laughs> but I think God wants to show us something that he's seeking to bring us into the stature and fullness of Jesus Christ unto a perfect man. But we're not yet there. We're not yet there. Very often uh, we've got to come up with a decision, right? And the stakes are real. And our heart is beating like a trip hammer. And we've prayed. And we have a slight intuition, a hunch of what we think the direction ought to be that we should take. But supposing that we're in error. You know what I believe? That if we have sincerely sought the face of God, however immature we are, and however lacking, even if we are in error, if it be sincere error, God will redeem it. And I've seen God do glorious things with my errors. I was leaving a, a meeting one day in a very tired condition, and a woman grabbed my arm as I passed by. She, was, she had a very perplexed look on her face. She said, Brother Catch, she said, as I was driving to the meeting, there was a man by the side of the road who had his thumb out for a lift, and she said, I had an immediate impulse to pick him up. But almost in the same instance, she said, it, I thought, well, how propitious is this? How will it appear for me, a woman in a car by myself, to pick up a male hitchhiker, and especially as a Christian woman? And she said, I was so divided in my heart, I didn't know what to do. She said, I finally did not pick him up. What should I have done? What was the will of God? And she was asking me the question as I was, I was, as I was leaving the meeting, already tired. I couldn't even think. And I said... I think you should have obeyed your first impulse. Aren't the steps of righteous men ordered of the Lord? I think more and more God is casting us upon the hearing of that still small voice and that impulse 
And then I said to her what I already mentioned to you. Even if you were in error, believing that the impulse was of God, he would have redeemed that error and protected you and have used you for his glory. We're called to be a people who act. And I remember once at a Presbyterian meeting where they trembled, where they were, it was a Jewish kind of meeting, and the man who, was, who ran the Cadillac agency and who was busy in the involvement, he said, Artie said, but what shall happen if you give one of those invitations and people shall accept it, and as you say they get saved, what then? I said, well, brother, the book that follows the Gospels is the book of Acts. God has called us to act. I think the Lord has already put his finger on a very enormous question. It's a question for the end times. How can we know the will of God and the direction of his spirit? I don't know if I can give a very clear answer, but I want to suggest some principles that are given in the scriptures. Because God's way has never changed. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul reminds us in the 24th verse of the first chapter that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I suppose that sums up the need that we shall have both to endure and to, to stand and to be led of God in a perilous hour. And then we're reminded in the 27th verse that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. It even hurts me a little bit to rush over these scriptures because I know I've got so much to speak tonight. But it's important not only to be familiar with the voice of God, the familiar accents of his speaking, but to be familiar also with the way of God that ever and always chooses foolish things. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Tremendous words. But for the most part, they've been, up until this hour, religious words, phrases. We've been phraseological Christians. And it's not been an issue of great moment that such words as these have actually had to become manifest in our own lives. We've only been required to subscribe to them, but it's not quite the same thing. And tonight we've already had the scary experience, perhaps for the first time, of what it means to come together as the body of Christ and to seek his faith, face together to perceive, to dis discern what is his mind and his will for a given night. And it's no easy business. It's very real and it's very urgent. And God is putting his finger on us in this hour. Have you noticed? He's not letting us get away with things as he did in times past when he winked. Now he's requiring us to walk and to live according to his word. That many of us shall know that God has made unto us wisdom. After this morning's session, a woman came to me and said, But how shall I speak to this particular Jewish man? She said, I, in so many words, I'm just a frail woman. And I don't have any great wisdom. I don't, and how shall I begin? How shall I approach him? God in Christ has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Precious people, these words have got to be made real in our lives or we're going to perish.
And I'll tell you, until we're willing to face that Jew, with our knees knocking together and our hearts pounding for fear, and believe that in a moment that we shall open our mouths, though our minds are a jangle, and we don't have a clear thought in our heads and don't know what to speak, but believe God in that moment, that when we shall bring our bodies as living sacrifices and open our mouths, His wisdom shall be made pronounced out of our mouth. Do you believe that? But I'll tell you, in that moment, there's very great trembling. In the second chapter, my brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If the great apostle Paul makes such a confession, why then should we be embarrassed to acknowledge our own? But I think it's interesting to note that this man of a towering intellect, prize student of the Rabbi Gamaliel, makes a statement which we have glossed over. He determined not to know anything but Christ and Him crucified. And if I look back upon my own Christian life, I would say that the first year was practically wasted. I thought that I had to bring to the Bible the same gifts and skills which I had spent years in, in uh, training myself to develop in the world. And I was going to analyze the scriptures. And I was going to interpret the scriptures. And I did a beautiful job. Man, was it poetic. Was it fanciful. Great flights of fancy. But I went a year and didn't advance one step. I don't know whether it's just the Jewish mind or, or the mind in general, but if you give it an opportunity, it has a life of its own. It always wants to think. It always wants to have certain fancies. It always wants to imagine. Paul had to, to, to determine not to know anything but Christ and Him crucified. And I'll tell you that if your mind has been a playground, and it's just been a place where all kinds of thoughts have roamed, so that you've been so distracted and things have collided one with another, it's going to take a real act of will not to know anything but Christ and Him crucified. Maybe there's going to have to be a necessary emptying out before God in Christ can be made unto us wisdom. And so he speaks about a wisdom that was not known in the world, but in the seventh verse we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our Glory. I don't know how many times Jewish people have said to me, what do you mean, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? The Shema Yisrael says, Hear, O Israel, your Lord, your God is one Lord. What do you, how do you get a God in three persons? Explain it to me. As if, bang, right on the spot, I'm going to give them an elaborate uh, theological explanation. You know what my answer is? That the Apostle Paul who was given insight and revelation beyond any man who saw things in the heavenlies of which he said it was not lawful to speak. Every time that he spoke of the Godhead, he prefaced it by one word. He spoke of the mystery of the Godhead. The mystery of the Godhead. The mystery of the body of Christ. The mysteries of God. Even the hidden wisdom. How then shall we know these mysteries? How then shall we have this wisdom and, and know how to walk in a perilous hour? The answer is in the 10th verse, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. 
How then are these deep things revealed? The twelfth verse, we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The fourteenth verse, for the natural man receives not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. There are things that are hidden and things that are concealed, deep and mysterious things which are revealed by God through his spirit to our spirits, freely given to us of God, who has made unto us in Christ wisdom, sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. And precious people, if you think that that is a New Testament formula and that this is a new way of God, I don't think that you've understood aright. And I want you to turn with me to the wonderful book of beginning Genesis, and we shall just examine an episode in the life of a Jewish man in which these basic and unchanging principles of God are revealed. The 39th chapter of Genesis. Jesus enjoyed throughout his earthly ministry all of the fullness of the Godhead. How did he enjoy it? By the same principle that it's made available to us. He was in such a perfect relationship with the Father. And he can make a statement to which God is bringing us, but which we cannot yet speak. That the prince of this world comes, but he has nothing in us. I think that there's a principle here. To the degree to which we can speak that statement, to that degree do we have the fullness of God. How do we come to such a place where we can say that the prince of this world cometh, but he has nothing in us? We read that Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then he was led into a wilderness by the Spirit. In one gospel it says, he was driven into the wilderness. And there we know that he was submitted to the ultimate and severe testing of the wilderness experience. All that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And on, the, on these three great temptations, Satan severely tested the Son of God, and he met every test. And when he came out of that wilderness, it says that he came out in the power of the Spirit. And then he went into the familiar synagogue, and he read the scriptures that began, The Spirit of God is upon me, for he has anointed me. And all eyes were set upon him, and they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And I believe that the body of Christ, which is now being formed, shall follow that same career step by step. We've received a baptism in the Holy Spirit, but we have to admit that we have not yet experienced the power and the wisdom that we thought would automatically be conferred. There is something that stands in between the initial receiving of the fullness of the Spirit and coming forth in the power of the Spirit that we might come to the familiar synagogues which have never taken note of us and speak in such a way with such an authority and with such a power that all the eyes shall be turned upon us and they shall say of us as was said of him, Is not this Joseph's son? And the thing that stands that has not yet been experienced but to which God is soon drawing us and which some of us individually are already experiencing is a necessary wilderness testing. And we might come to the place where Jesus came and say, The prince of this world cometh, 
but he has nothing in me. Now you say, Art, so far I think I'm with you, but what has this got to do with Joseph in the book of Genesis? And my answer is everything. Joseph was despised of his brothers. They despised him for his dreams and all the more for the words that he spoke and because he was the beloved son of his father and his apparel was different than all of the others. What a picture that is of the body of Christ in the end times. We're going to be despised for his namesake. We're going to be despised for our visions. And we're going to be despised for our words. And I believe that we're going to be despised even for the difference which we shall stand in the world in our outward appearing. We're going to be conspicuously different in the way we speak, the way we act, and the way even that we appear and that we dress. And I think that the world is already beginning to take on a certain configuration, a certain pattern, a certain stylishness to which less and less we shall be unable to give ourselves. I remember I was recently in a city and I wanted to get a pair of shoes. And I went out between the meetings and I came back without them. I simply could not find a pair of shoes that I could wear. Every single pair had heels so monstrous, so grotesque and so bizarre, as if Satan himself had concocted the most garish kind of design and suckers palpitated and panted after it and actually wore it, but I could not. And I somehow related my predicament at one of the meetings, and after a meeting, a certain married couple came to me and said, Brother, the Lord has laid, us on, laid it on our hearts to buy you a pair of shoes, and they got me this pair. <laughs> but I had to go to a very special place where they can still find the good old conservative models. I don't want to make too much of this, but I think increasingly this is going to be so. The world is going to become increasingly groovy and take on a certain style, and we've seen it already. And I think it's interesting to note that although the Iron Curtain stands as an enormous bulwark against the gospel, against the smuggling in of Bibles and the Word of God, they have not been able to resist and stand against the style of long hair. It has a power. It has a compulsion that has even found its way into Iron Curtain countries. And I just have come back from Germany and spent a day in East Berlin and had to note that almost universally this style has been adopted by the East German youth. There's something about the power of styles. Joseph was despised of his brethren. And I remember even as a young believer, I'd come back from Jerusalem, stunned, wondering why God had saved me, and came back to the teaching profession. And the Lord was already using me, and I was speaking to my colleagues, and there was one Jewish woman on that staff to whom I seemed always to be addressing myself, always speaking about the Lord, always trying to encourage her to believe. What a pathetic creature she was. She went to sleep with pills, and she woke up with pills, and twice a week at the psychiatrist. Her marriage was a mess. She was a broken thing. And yet she was conveying the wisdom of the world to her students. And one day we came to the cafeteria, and I had nothing to say. My mouth was shut. And finally she was eating, but I guess something was bothering her. So she put down a fork, she couldn't stand anymore. She looked up at me, she said, Archie said, even when you're silent, you're a living accusation. <laughs> so shall we increasingly become a despised Joseph among 
our brethren. And I don't think it's any accident that there's the pattern revealed from the very first in this 39th chapter because the first verse says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Oh, precious people, if we are going to be that body of Christ and follow the career of that one who came before us as the Savior of the world, and we're going to be the instrument of salvation for many, we too must submit to a pattern of God which is unchangeable. As Jesus was brought down into a wilderness testing, and Joseph was brought down into Egypt, so also must we. And I tell you, and I, and I say it as compassionately as I know how, that if your marriage is successful tonight, and you've never had a bit of trouble, and you've always had a wonderful understanding and compatibility, even before you were saved, tighten your safety belt. Because God said in the end times, all things that can be shaken would be shaken, that only that which can remain will remain. And God is not going to allow your marriage to remain and be sustained by the happy accident of temperamental compatibility. You're either going to be grounded on the rock Christ Jesus or not at all. And I'll tell you, there's going to be a shaking. There's going to be a being brought down that we might like Joseph be brought up in a moment of severe crisis when all the world shall not have answer and men's hearts shall be failing them for fear, but a lowly, despised Hebrew brought up out of obscurity and out of a dungeon will speak the wisdom of God unto salvation when all the wise men of Egypt cannot give answer. Precious people, there's a pattern here. We showed tonight before God and ourselves that in a small crisis of only wanting to know what the will of God is and the wisdom of God for one meeting, we could not have unanimous agreement. We had not yet come to that place where the Spirit of God has so possession of us that we had a complete unanimity of understanding. Because we've not yet come to that place where we've met these temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes and the pride of life, and have met them successfully that we have been emptied out of ourselves that we might be wholly possessed of the Spirit of God and His wisdom, His sanctification, His redemption, His power. Are you willing to submit yourself to a necessary process? Joseph was brought down to Egypt. But we read in the second verse, the Lord was with Joseph. Oh, we mustn't forget that. That even the times when we're brought low, when we're beating our chest and crying out, Oy vey, why me? And why am I suffering this? And why this calamity? And why is my marriage being shaken? And all these kinds of things. It's not that God has forsaken you. It is the most exquisite expression of his unfailing love. He loves you so much, he's unwilling that you should be satisfied with second best. Because he's called you to be perfect as your Father which is in heaven. Oh, we would have been satisfied to remain as we are. Look, Lord, aren't we a wonderful bunch of saints? And look how we enjoy singing together and meeting together and having fellowship. And our marriages, well, they're pretty good. And our family is okay. And, and we even witness at work. Isn't that enough? I'll tell you that remember that when you shall be brought low in Egypt, as God was with Joseph, so will he be with you. And God gave Joseph favor, and we know that 
He was brought up out of that dungeon and came into the house of Potiphar, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hands. We read in the end of the sixth verse that Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. Then we read in the seventh verse, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. You really appreciate the word of God tonight? Isn't this something choice? Isn't this something spectacular? Isn't it some like, like some rare vintage? Oh, I know that you're not like us Jews who are given to the drinking of wine, but I just can't help saying that this is a most precious beverage. It's not something cheap like Coke or, or something that we pulled from a can, a pop of cork. This is something of God's planting. This is something that required a seed to fall in the ground to die. This required fruit cruelly ripped off the vine, crushed, pulverized, refined, filtered, poured off from vessel to vessel, strained, processes of death, 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 and finally buried in a dark place, that at a time of need, this precious fluid should be brought up out of burial, and we should hold that bottle up tonight, the word of God, and hold it to the light. 